going to be reading from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. If you have your Bibles or, as my friend says, your electronic gadgets. <laughs> Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Let me just pray before we begin. <clears throat> Almighty God, we thank you for your word. You have not left us without your word. You've given us your word. But Lord, we also acknowledge that we need your help to even understand your word. Oh God, that our hearts would be open to receiving what you would have. Our minds would be clear and uh, without distraction to be able to hear what you are saying. Uh, as scripture says, let him uh, who hears hear what the spirit what the Spirit is saying. That, and that's what we desire, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. So it says that uh, one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man uh, crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him, them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them to the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Uh, that's the passage uh, from which I'll be speaking today. But before I get to the teaching, I wanted to say a couple of things. Thank you for praying for me and for my family in December. I got a call on December 11. My sister sent me a text, actually the 10th. And uh, in the text, she showed, uh, sent me a picture with her face swollen. And she said, uh, the doctor thinks I have kidney failure. Um, please, uh, I'm on my way to the hospital. And so I was worried about that. And then uh, that turns out that the, when they examined her, they diagnosed her with a small cell lung cancer. She had a massive tumor on her lung that was obstructing the superior vena cava, which basically is just that it's a valve in the lung that, that drains the fluids from the upper part of the body. And she ended up swelling, swelling, swelling. It was not a pretty sight to see. And she did die three weeks later. She went into the hospital on Thursday night and died on Friday, New Year's Day. Um, but... Thank you for praying. And what I want you to know is that I'm one of eight children that my mother uh, birthed. One died as an infant, so seven of us lived to grow up. And when I was 20, 20, I have a brother who accidentally shot himself and he died. 
And then I have a sister, when she was 48, she fell down some stairs and died. And so I've had siblings die, but I didn't have the chance to say goodbye. I didn't have the chance to say last words. I, I am the type of person that you know how I feel toward you. Um, if I don't like you, unfortunately, you will know it. Amen. I can't fake it. I try, I try to fake it, but I, I just can't do that. Uh, so I didn't have regrets in that I knew that my siblings, that I loved them. I knew that they knew I loved them. But you don't get to say goodbye. You don't get to, there's so much. It's so abrupt. It's, it's harsh. It's cruel. Both of them died uh, way before what we would say their uh, due time. But my sister was 66 years old. She came up to our house for Thanksgiving. She hadn't left her house in three years. She had been in bed, not feeling well. My brother-in-law brought her. She, my birthday was on Thanksgiving Day. She spent that day with me, and that was the best gift I could have possibly have had. It was the best birthday in my whole life. I turned 61, and I can't think of a better birthday than that one. And uh, I got to spend three weeks at her side, holding her hand. And by the way, she was lucid, clear as a bell. My, my sister's personality would fill a stadium. Uh, she was, yeah, you either loved her or you didn't. <laughs> uh, but... But there we were, Ray and I, Ray was by my side, he was my rock, and I'm so grateful. And so this time, and Barbara said this last week, my sister had a good death. We were there, people who knew her got to see her. She knew that they were there. She was able to interact with them only until the day before she died did she lose the, ab the ability to speak. And so it was just beautiful. It was beautiful, and when she passed, I was okay. I was okay with it. And the only little uh, editor's note that I would add to that is that I did post on Facebook uh, to keep things, uh, well, keep people informed. Um, and I had some people post back and say, well, I believe in miracles. So I'm going to pray and ask God to raise her up from the bed. And I thought, go head on. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I did too. <laughs> I wasn't going to wait for someone else to think of it. Uh, so that the note is that the truth is that death is part of life. And I knew she was going to die. And I didn't feel as though God had abandoned her or me. And so I, I accepted that these were her last days. And if I had not accepted that, I don't think they would have been as good as they were. And as I was able to say last week, Ray prayed with her the day after we arrived, invited her to accept Christ as her Savior, and she did. And some people might criticize that as a, as a what is that, a fox, yeah, right, foxhole. Who cares? Who cares? I, I think of the, of the criminals that were by Jesus' side. They, were, they said they deserved to be there, and one of them got to see him in glory. So it's never too late, and that works for me. Just thought I'd mention that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say before I get into the teaching was how much I enjoy seeing the children up front. I just love it. I love seeing them. And I remember one time, one Sunday that we were here, uh, Dave, you did bring them up and, and you did remind them that it was about worship. And uh, I don't know that they remember that or care. Uh, but uh, yes, I, I saw it just blesses me. I, I just love to see it. And I'll tell you why. And then I almost started crying when I saw um, Andy come up. 
uh, and, uh, and this is why. My children, Ray, Ray became a pastor after I had given birth to our fifth child. And I come from old-fashioned two cultures. Uh, children are to be seen and not heard. They're supposed to sit like statues, thank you very much. And so uh, my children were never allowed to sit with anybody else. They were not allowed to just walk around the church. They had to be within pinching range. <laughs> and this is where I pinch them. It hurts a lot. And so my children are going to have, and do because the youngest is 32 now, really painful memories of going to church. But the children of this church are going to have happy memories. And I really, I mean, I mean that. I see them and I think, my God, when they get older, when they're teenagers, when they're older than that, they're going to have that very pleasant sensation of saying, yeah, I used to go to church or I still go to church or I remember when I was young and I was allowed to just go up and express myself and be with friends and we were the same even though we were different. And when you came up, I just wanted to cry. And so did the other adults because that just made that reality, that contrast, because I'm joking, but I'm not joking. My children have painful memories of being in church, but yours won't. And I'm very grateful to God for that. I bless you. Amen. So this is, this is on Acts. It's, it is, it's, you know, it's hard to pick a favorite, isn't it? It's hard to pick a favorite passage. So I'll say this. Every time I do a teaching, that's my favorite passage. And so today and for many, many days, Acts uh, is my favorite passage. But this one was, and you'll see why, for uh, many reasons. And I just love it. Uh, one fun fact about Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, is that it is the first recorded miracle that God did through the apostles, through the disciples. The first recorded. We don't know for a fact that it was the first miracle, but we know it's the first one that we read about. I love fun facts. I used to, when I would prepare sermons, I would, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I would come up with like 89 pages of notes. <laughs> and I, I use hyperbole, but I promise you I had 89 pages of notes. <laughs> And my children would come and say, Mom, you, you can't do that. It's like, oh, darn, but it's also good. It's really hard to pare it down. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to go through the verses one by one. And I want to say this, too. I don't remember what I said the last time. I, I might have said this, but I get bored very quickly and very easily. I think there's medication for that. <laughs> um, but I, I've never been on it. But I really do get bored very easily, very quickly. And so sometimes I struggle reading the word because it's so familiar. And then I just, I asked God, I said, I need you to make it fresh and new. I don't want to just get to the bottom of the page and not care how I got there. I need it to be alive. And the Lord does that. Isn't that wonderful? So I don't want you to tune out. I know that this is a familiar passage, uh, but I ask you to stay connected. So here we go. I'll read verse one of chapter three of the book of Acts. Uh, well, I'm not going to read the entire verse. I'm going to read portions of it. So we see here that he was, uh, uh, that, the, that Peter, I want to say Peter and Paul, <laughs> Peter and John were on their way, to, uh, going to the temple at the time of prayer, which I'm going to say was around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, Peter and John were on their way to the temple for the evening sacrifices, and in Isaiah 39:29 we see that it says the command is to offer a sacrifice in the morning and uh, the other at twilight. Three o'clock in the afternoon would have been considered the twilight uh, sacrifice. The significance of this, which um, 
I'm going to guess that in churches where they have four or five services, that they can tell you which, is, which are the ones that are most heavily populated. I think in the summertime, the morning, early morning ones are so that people can have the rest of the day. And when the weather's not so good, maybe the later ones so that people don't have to get up early and drag themselves out of bed to get to church and then not be able to do anything because the weather's bad. But anyway, I'm guessing that this second service of sacrifice every day at the temple was the busiest one, just because the other one was early, right? It definitely was the busiest one. That's significant because verse 2 tells us that there was a man that was there and that he had been crippled from birth. Chapter 4 of Acts tells us that the, for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So he had been there a lot. I don't know how old he was when they started taking him, but I'm guessing it wasn't just a few days, especially since he had been since birth, right? Uh, he was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. And uh, Ray and I are uh, ministers at large, and we have, we've named the ministry that we do Taste and See from Psalm 38, verse 4, uh, 34, verse 8. <laughs> Uh, but for a while, I, want, I really did. This, was, this passage is, has so much meaning to me that I wanted to name it um, Beautiful Gate or the gate called Beautiful. But that's not such an easy website to get. So uh, that had to go down to the ground. But anyway, it was at the gate called Beautiful. He was put there daily to beg. And for those uh, being, from those who were being taken into the temple courts. Now, I'm guessing it was his cousins or close friends who carried him because surely, since he was 40 years old, his parents were too old to do so. And then this makes me think of Luke 5, 19, uh, where it tells us that um, some friends could not find a way to do this, which was to take their friend who was crippled and on a cot uh, because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. That's basically just to let you know that when I say I'm guessing it was his friends or his relatives, I have reason to guess that. People would do that for each other, right? Okay, verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple court. This is why I asked for this mic. Because I want us, uh, I have to kind of live it to understand it. And so the reason I pointed out that I'm sure it was the busy time is that that makes me think that there were a lot of people coming in at once, right? Lots of people. And um, throngs, let's say. And then, do you think that he was the only beggar? No. I don't think so. One, because one time, I don't know who was the first beggar, but I'm guessing that the first one did, and then the other people that were coming in were saying, hey, I've got a cousin that can do that. He's just at home doing nothing. He, he can eat. His family can eat now. I'm going to bring my cousin, my friend, my sister, whatever. I'm thinking there were a few beggars there vying for the attention of the throng. Okay, you with me now? Lots of people walking in. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, so what happens? In my mind is that they're each looking and they know how to pick their mark. I mean, that's an ugly way to put it, but they, you have to be intuitive, right? You have to know, you have to look and see, this one's never noticed me. This one's never given me anything. This one did, and he was really generous. This one never even looks in my way. You know, you kind of have to get to know the crowd, and there weren't that many different people that they kind of knew them, right? Same people, I may not know all of your names, but you look familiar to me. I've seen you a few times. And for the ones that were begging and their li entire livelihood depended on that, yeah. Yeah, I think that was very important. 
So he asked them for money. And then Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Now, what I want to point out here is I'm thinking that this guy went chutching, right? Looked right at him. Because I'm sure he, they weren't the first ones that he called out. Hello, you, yeah, nice day. God bless you. Can I wash your car window? Yeah, right? Right? And this one looks right at him. And then he says, look at us. So the man gave him his full attention, expecting, this is verse 5, expecting to get something from them. Now, we can say, this is, this is another fun fact. I looked it up. I looked it up before, but I looked it up again just to make sure because the information I'm going to tell you sounds fantastic. But it says, we can say that the brain can only make about two conscious calculations per second. That sounds like a lot to me. But then again, I do get easily distracted, so maybe not. Um, but many more unconscious calculations. So then I Googled, how many calculations can the brain make in a second? One study that I reviewed noted that the brain is capable of making, listen to this one, 100 trillion calculations per second. And by the way, there, were more, there was more than one source. Calcul not conscious, not conscious, it's the brain. What it is is your brain is telling you your heart to beat. It's, it's, it's uh, watching all of the valves of the veins and the arteries. It's telling you what temperature the body is. It's telling you whether your bottom is comfortable or isn't while you're sitting down. It's telling you that you're hungry. It's telling you all of these things. 100 trillion calculations per second. And then uh, in the chemistry, at least 100,000 different chemical reactions occur in the normal human brain every second. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Okay, so this is why I pointed that out. I told you that, that I'm thinking that the beggar went cha-ching. That may not be exactly, it's, I, I don't know how to say that in Hebrew, but um, <laughs> something like that, right? So now, Peter, then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. Right here, I'm thinking that the beggar's saying, What? The throng is moving by. You made me stop looking at them. I was checking them out. I have a strategy here. And you tell me you don't have anything. Well, then keep going because I've got another mark. I mean, I've got to find somebody else with a tender heart, somebody else <laughs> with money. Now, the beggar, oh, so what did he say? But what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Right here. This is another one. I'm thinking he's saying, really? You're going to add insult to injury? I can't walk. You tell me you're broke. You're taking me away from the people I'm trying to get their attention, and now you're telling me to walk. So now you're cruel and you're a bully because you're making fun of me. The beggar asked for money, which if they'd given him some, it would have hardly been enough to buy anything and certainly not enough to pay for the treatment at a medical center or for physical therapy. Verse 7, taking him by the hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Amazing. Fantastic. My mother in 2005 had a massive stroke that I think many others would have probably died from it. It left her completely paralyzed, not slow to walk, completely paralyzed and unable to talk, but still 
in her mind, which was a cruel, cruel existence. If I was with her and you told me a sad story, my mother would cry. If you told me a funny story, she'd laugh because she was there. She was there. If I asked her questions, she'd shake her head. If I told her stories, she could acknowledge, but she couldn't do absolutely anything else for herself. She lived five and a half years in this state, and as she did, what happened? Her muscles atrophied. That was only five and a half years. This man was 40 years old, crippled. His muscles had no tone whatsoever. He had never walked. What do babies do? They have to learn to walk. And what happens when you learn to walk? You do a lot of falling, right? I love that this is an example of that. When God does something, he does it absolutely and completely. He gave this man everything he needed. He gave him the ability to, to balance himself from having been close to the ground to being tall up. I sometimes, when I stand up, I get dizzy. And I know how to walk. And I know how to stand up. So here, everything happened. He got tone in his muscles. He got the ability to not fall over. And all of a sudden, his body knew how to walk. Not only that, it also says he jumped, right? He did everything. When God is not only able, he is able beyond and above our imagination or what we dare or hope to ask. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, instead of money, he received what he would have gladly paid millions of dollars right? Millions. He didn't have it, but he'd probably come up with a really creative way to try to get it. If someone had said, you can walk, you'll be healed, you'll be made whole, guaranteed, if you just do this. I'm sure he would have tried at least to find a way. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Yeah, I would praise God too. Glory. Hallelujah. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. You see, they knew each other. They knew each other, the regular attenders and all of the people who sat there depending on them, depending on the, the generosity and the kindness and the grace of those who called that place home. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Because this incident happened at the temple gate, there's no question that Jesus passed this man by. He'd surely been taken there since he was old enough to contribute to the household income. I don't know what the rules or the laws were. I don't know. But I'm thinking, they said, you got a mouth we have to feed. Begging happens over there. Guess what? That's where you're going. Because life is hard for us all. It wasn't easy back then. Everybody had to make a contribution somehow. Jesus had passed by him every time he went to the temple and entered through that gate. And Father did healing through Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you why this passage became my favorite for so, so long. Ray was trained uh, in the fundamentalist evangelical school system. And the first church that Ray and I attended the first churches that we attended in our first five years as believers were as fundamentalist evangelicals. And really, basically, all that that means is that there, there, there was a theological and systematic instruction that charismatic gifts, healing, praying in tongues, prophetic words, etc., were of the devil. Not only was it not encouraged, but basically we were told that it, you were of, of the devil if you did that and that those things were from the devil. 
The contrast to that is that we had friends who had come to faith, uh, and they were of the burgeoning name it and claim it. So it was like, I used to say to them, you know, they'd say, don't say you're sick. Don't say you're sick. And I thought, well, if I fall down the stairs and my bone is sticking out my flesh, can I say it then? Because... (laughs) Someone's going to have to help me. (laughs) So do you see the contrast there? And one of the things that we love about the vineyard, which is why we uh, aligned ourselves, we were friends of the vineyard for seven, eight years before we uh, joined the vineyard, um, is because they build that bridge. And it's within the vineyard that I realized that it isn't that you just claim it. I know that life and death are in the tongue. That's true. I don't want to minimize that. But you don't just claim it because God's not a robot. He's not a marionette. He's God and he's sovereign. And he loves us. And he does much more than we're willing to ask or imagine. But neither is is God a statue, even though the fundamentalist would never say he was a statue, but apparently he's one of those jackets, straight jackets, (laughs) because there's so much he doesn't do. God heals, he provides, he answers prayer in such a way that he gives glory to himself. And so this makes me think of uh, the passage where it says, um, John 9, 1, as he went along, this is where Jesus heals a man born blind. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So... The deal is this. There's a teaching that I have done in the past where I said, God, Jesus healed all. He healed most. He healed some. He healed one. Anyone know the one? Pula Bethesda. You know the significance of that? He had to walk over a bunch of sick people to get to him. And when he left, they were still sick. He healed one. And in this case, he healed none. He walked past this man over and over and over again and didn't heal him. Why? Did he have a hard heart? No. Jesus was obedient to Father all day, every day. And, And Jesus might have said, today, Lord, today, Father, and Father would say, no, not today, not today. We don't know the personal story of the vast absolute majority of the ones that Jesus healed, but we know this man's story because this is the one that brings Father glory. To this day, we're still talking about it. We're talking about this healing, and that's what God does, and we need to accept that. He is God, and everything he does is perfect in his wisdom and in his plan. And when he does it, it's about him, not about us. It's about him, and it behooves us to stand back and consider, how might I glorify you in this? How might I glorify? I can't tell you how many times in Chicago, I'm so glad for living down here where there aren't parking meters, where I had to go somewhere and I didn't have money, I didn't have the change, and tickets for parking meters are very expensive. And I'd pray and I'd say, God, please, let me find a meter with money in it, with time on it, and he'd do it. He'd do it. Now, you don't know that he did that, but I didn't. At that moment, I really would worship him because I was so grateful. It's a good way to relate to Father. Father, this is about you. You showed me once again that you hear me, that, you, that the little things, the little things are important to you. 
that they matter, that, that you can handle the cacophony of prayers of everyone clamoring at the same time, and you hear each one of us as though we were the only ones, and you respond to us as though we were the only ones, and nothing is too little, and nothing is too big. Amen? Amen. Now, we're going to look at the same passages, but from uh, Peter and John's side. A little bit. So, uh, most times in life, we're Peter and John, right? I don't know how many of us identify all the time or even once with the, with the man who was crippled from birth. But the truth is that as we walk in faith and in relationship with Christ, we are Peter and John. And so, we're minding our own business, doing and being good as we walk our own paths, when somehow we come across someone in need. I can't tell you how many times, maybe most of the time, that I feel as though I'm ministering from an empty place. I know I don't have anything to give. I do. And you know what? Father kind of reminds me of that, too. I'll tell you one really quick thing. When we were friends of the Vineyard, we, Ray and I tried to attend as many conferences as we could. This was 85 to 90. We joined in 92. Lots of Vineyard conferences then. John Wimber was doing teachings. We went to California. We went to Indiana, all over the place, Colorado, and sat in on those teachings. And then we got to, because we kept hanging around, they let us join some of the prayer teams. And uh, I was at a, at a conference in um, Alabama. And I was part of the prayer team, and there was a woman that I ended up praying with with two other people. I was always the trainee because I wasn't officially a vineyard person. Um, and there was, uh, so I was, I was a trainee, and there was a woman that we, that we walked up to to offer to pray. And then um, we asked her, what do you need? And so uh, she said something about her heart, and I thought, fantastic, I can pray for her heart. Yay. And then she said, I need to have a, a heart transplant. And I went, ugh, 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 ugh. I, don't, uh, ugh. I did not have faith for that at all. And I can't even tell you if that lady's alive, but if it depended on my faith, she's dead. <laughs> because I didn't have it. I didn't have it. And that happens. That happens. Uh, when I really get full of myself, God will just let me bump into somebody that reminds me that it's about him. Because my arm is too short to reach. I don't have a lot of faith. I think I just proved that to you. But I try to have obedience. I try to follow the prompting. And sometimes the prompting is Ray pushing me. Uh, physically. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I might offer to pray because I know I have God's permission to ask him to heal a person who was crippled from birth because my confidence is in him. Now I'd like to share with you one of the vineyard values, and it reads as this. We lean toward the lost, the poor, the outcast, and the outsider with the compassion of Jesus knowing we are sinners who standing before God is utterly dependent on his mercy. This mercy can only be truly received in as much as we are willing to give it away. We believe that ministry in Jesus' name should be expressed in concrete ways through the local church. The poor are to be served as though we serve Jesus himself. This is one of the distinguishing characteristics of a church expressing the love of Christ in a local community. In fact, in all forms of ministry, compassion is a hallmark of the one 
who was moved with compassion in the face of human need, this being the age of grace and the year of the Lord's favor, compassion should constitute the leading edge of our service to God, each other, and our broken world. With humility, we seek to avoid unauthorized judgment of others. The comment you made, yes. Realizing that we suffer and struggle along with the rest of humanity. We're not apart from it, except that Father has set us apart by his anointing. But otherwise, we would be indistinguishable from them. Diane Lehman, she and her husband were on the national board of the vineyard. Uh, her husband's happy Lehman. She wrote a, a comment that summed up this entire uh, two, three paragraphs that I just read. And she summed it up in this way. Can I pray for you right now? Seven words. These seven words represent the immediacy of the presence of God and his heart for everyone. God comforts those of us who feel as though we don't have anything to give. You know, even if, if, if you end up sitting next to somebody whose need is financial and your pockets are empty and you couldn't write a check, you know, even if you had your checkbook, we can ask Father to provide financially, right? There isn't anything that we don't have that Father can't provide. We can pray. We can pray. And I think that we don't always um, embrace or stand on the power of prayer. Because I think that sometimes it does feel as though our prayer, prayers ricochet across the walls and don't even penetrate the ceiling, much less the roof, or reach Father. But it's okay if they ricochet, because wherever we are gathered, so is his spirit. And so it's okay. It's okay if we're really rotten at praying. It's okay because he hears and he cares about our heart. He comforts those who have needed for so long that they've quit asking. They've quit hoping. They've quit expecting anything to change or be different. Peter and John said it perfectly. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. What I have and what do we have? We have Christ. We have hope. We have a direct line. Hallelujah. This is all God expects or requires of us, and that is to offer what we have, whatever that might be. It's not a matter of money. Picture this. Peter and John were among the throng of people, sort of like a herd of sheep, all walking in one direction to do the same thing. They stopped. They intentionally stepped out of the crowd mentality and interacted with the crippled man. Sometimes it's necessary to ignore those who are in need. You're, you know, if you pass by the same people who are in Chicago, that happens a lot. You pass by the same beggars all the time. If you go to work, downtown in the office, you take the L train. They're the same ones. I have a friend who would always take half of her lunch to this one man. She got to know him. She prayed with him. They became fast friends. And so she would sometimes sit with him, and sometimes she just had to wave because she couldn't do it. She didn't have the time to give him more than that much attention. So I understand. I'm not trying to put a, a guilt trip or put an, uh, a, 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 a burden yoke on you, but rather just to say it's okay. But let's not, if, if we never notice, I think we can say that that's cause for concern. Other times we can stop, but we'll say something like, hey, they were here yesterday, they'll be here tomorrow, I'll get to them another time. Or 
will say, I don't have the answer to their problems. I can't really help anyway. Their situation is much bigger, much graver than anything I can do to help. I believe that God will bless every exchange when we pull ourselves away from the group and dare to interact and dare to offer what we do have. I'm not just talking about people who are begging on the street corners or in subways. This is about being compassionate and offering to pray for the people you know or the people God allows to cross your path day in and day out. One time Ray and I were at Best Buy and uh, we were at the uh, Geek Squad thing and the guy was working on it and he had walked away so we were standing there and then a supervisor came and she was coughing and hacking and bending over and they said, oh my gosh, you look so sick. And she was standing right next to me because she was here and they were there. And I, I just turned over and I said, May I pray for you? I promise it will be very quick. Because personally, my favorite healing prayer in the Gospels is when Jesus rebuked the fever in Peter's mother-in-law. I, you know what? I don't go for this. Excuse me. Excuse me. We're going to pray. Everybody be quiet now. <laughs> Father, God Almighty, heal this woman that she might know you are real. No, I, I don't go for that. Uh, so I grabbed her hand. And I said, God, you heal. And I ask you to heal this dear woman. Amen. And that's it. I can't tell you that she was healed because she went on her way. But she let me. She let me. And I asked in such a way that it was okay if she said no. Because, you know, I've got pride. I, didn't, I don't want to, you know, fall on the floor crying. So <laughs> you ask the right way, then it's okay. It's not rejection. It's just that she feels uncomfortable and it's her problem, not yours. Yeah. All right. Sometimes we get to pray for a neighbor, or a teller, or a cashier, someone that you see regularly. Compassion means with passion, and often Jesus ministered simply because he was deeply moved with compassion. In the vineyard, we believe that we are called to be intentional about noticing those around us who are in need, and intentional about reaching out and offering something, whether it's a listening ear, a couple hours of time, friendship, or as Dan, Diane Lehman said, offering these simple seven words. Can I pray for you right now? And that's why this is my favorite passage. So I hope, I ask the Lord that he would allow this teaching to inspire you and encourage you to just step out a little bit. And every time we do it once, we have the courage and the experience to do it twice and to do it again. What we have is what we give. Uh, as Teresa was uh, speaking, uh, and I've thought about this for, for many years, sometimes when we, uh, we know kind of like what, what we want from the Lord, right? We have a good idea when we come to, you know, to pray or, or we ask them for prayer. We have a pretty good sense of what we desire. In some cases, God, I, you know, I need some money to pay the rent next month. Lord, uh, I need to, uh, my relationship uh, with my um, spouse needs to get better. Would you, would you help her with that? Uh, <laughs> or I mean, I mean me. Would you help me with that? Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so we have a good idea. Um, and, and I just want to say that sometimes what we, what we do is until God does what we want him to do, we're not open to other things that God would want to do. And we sometimes even might even get disappointed because, man, I, I prayed about this, and then, 
God wanted to show me that. That's fine. But what I really wanted was this. So imagine the beggar being disappointed that he didn't get the money, but he got something else. He, he, could, he could not have uh, reached out his hand because there's an element there where they grabbed his hand and he grabbed back. And sometimes God wants to show you or do something else for you. The question is, are you open to something else that God may want to do? In the vineyard, we're taught that um, when we pray for someone and someone comes up and, and might say, oh, you know, I, I want prayer because my stomach really hurts. I've been having some problems with my stomach. Okay? Okay, that's a, that's a physical need. But then you who are praying would ask the Spirit before you start praying, the five-step model, before you start praying, you ask the Holy Spirit, okay, how do you want me to pray for this person? The presenting issue is they have an upset stomach. But then as you begin to pray for the person, and you may ask a couple questions. We're not therapists or doctors or anything like that. We understand that. But as the Spirit leads, um, well, have you had something difficult happen to you in, within the last month or the last few weeks? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, my, my dog ran away, I lost my job, and I'm having uh, relational problems. So maybe that's why your stomach hurts, because you're internalizing all of that stuff. Maybe there's anger, maybe there's bitterness, maybe the struggle. And so the prayer then changes a little bit of focus. Yes, we pray for the need, physical, but then there are other things that God may want to, to say. So my question to you is if God were to tell you, I have something else for you, would you receive it? That's my question to you. You know what you want. You know if you came up for prayer what you would ask for. If God were to show you something else that he wants to do in your life, would you receive it? 